got a little bit of a message for you today, and then we're going to participate in Lord's Supper. So let me get started by saying my title for you this morning is this, Six Lessons That We've Learned. Six Lessons That We've Learned. That's my title for you this morning. And as you might surmise, what I want to do this morning is restate what we've covered in the previous eight messages for the series that we've been engaged in, Kingdom Families. Let me begin by saying this. I don't want you to be discouraged. Can you receive that? In my family, when we've got to say something that we know the other person doesn't want to hear, we, have, we say it like this. We preface it and we go, I need to say something to you and I want you to receive it. What that means is you need to put down your defenses because I'm not trying to pick a fight. I need to say something to you, Dimey, and I need you to receive it. Usually something along those lines, and vice versa, because we're good at fighting. We're good at being defensive. We're good at always protecting ourselves, but I'm your pastor. I'm not your enemy. I know the last eight weeks have been tough. We've done some heavy lifting, amen? We've had to do some soul searching. A few of you have had a crisis of conscience, if you will, where you're like, this is not where I should be, or I have been convicted over some of the things that you've said. That's not horrible. I want to say what I said again. I don't want you to be discouraged. Can you receive it? I don't want you to be discouraged. Sometimes the good thing and the hard thing are the same thing. In our world today, if there is any effort required for anything whatsoever, then it must not be, as we sometimes say, meant to be. But biblically speaking, nothing could be further from the truth. In the biblical paradigm, in God's providence and plan, often God has ordained that the good thing and the hard thing are the same thing. And the blessings that we cherish and covet are waiting for us at the corner of responsibility and faithfulness. Can you receive it? Sure, he can, and God often does, simply grant us those things that we long for, like peace, happiness, and joy, and so on. But the most graphic picture that I can think of to address this issue is found in the Bible, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. It's going to come up on the screen here so that you can read it with your eyes as I read aloud. And it describes... Jesus being both responsible and faithful. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, We look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Get this, church. Who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame, and now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you get that? He's seated at the right hand of God, and he despised the shame that came with the cross, but he endured the cross because of the joy that was awaiting him on the other side of his obedience. 
Jesus did not sit idly by and hope that God did something that only God could do. Part of God's will was that Jesus die. This is scriptural. It was foreordained and planned in the wisdom and providence of God that Jesus would die, that he would be obedient, that he would do for you and for me, say amen, what we could not do for ourselves, the righteous for the unrighteous. God was just in punishing sin, which made God free to forgive the sinner. Sometimes the things that we covet and we long for are met at the intersection of responsibility and faithfulness. And I'm so glad that Jesus was responsible to his father, that Jesus was faithful to his father. You might be asking, Joe, what does this have to do with the kingdom family series that we've been going through? A lot! Because Paul says, you want to know how to be married? You want to know how to be a parent? Look at Jesus. Jesus loves his people. Jesus loves his father. Jesus is faithful to his body. You want to be a good husband or a good wife? Look at Jesus. Follow his example. In this case, the good thing and the hard thing are the same thing. I know that some of you have been hearing a lot of what has been difficult lately in the last few weeks. You might feel a little scathed and a little beat up, a little bruised, but that's not a bad thing. Sometimes we've got to go through some trying circumstances. Sometimes we've got to get beat up a little bit to get stronger, to rebound and come out the other side of the incident greater than when it first began. No one was made strong and comfort and complacency. As Frederick Douglass once said, without struggle, there is no progress. So, having said that, I don't want you to be discouraged. In fact, on the contrary, this morning I want to remind you of six things that we've learned over the last few weeks. I hope that we've learned a lot more, but I think these things will cover the gamut. Let's begin with the first thing. Number one, we learned that the family is God's design. The family is God's design. The book of Genesis is what the title of that book is. The word Genesis means beginnings or origins, and that's exactly what Genesis is. It's a book of beginnings. In the book of Genesis, we find a collection of beginnings. For example, the beginning of the universe, the beginning of the earth, land, and sea teeming with life. And of course, we see the beginning of marriage and family. And when Paul quotes the book of Genesis, where it all begins, he says, the two shall be one flesh. The two shall be one flesh. Church, family is God's design. It comes with a creation mandate, namely that our families should multiply God-fearing, Christ-honoring children. 
And that design, as Paul acknowledges in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, presupposes unity and oneness. In other words, if as a spouse you are divided mentally, emotionally, and spiritually from your spouse, you will raise children who are emotionally, mentally, and spiritually divided. The oneness that Genesis chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 5 verse 31 presupposes pours over into everything. Now, let me say this. Anything that is God's is worth fighting for. And I don't mean fighting with fists. I mean fighting the good fight. I mean fighting the good fight with principle and moral and conviction. And we're currently engaged, church. We're currently engaged in a battle for the things that belong to God. Masculinity and femininity. The sacredness of the marital bond between a man and a woman. The sacredness of life that happens naturally when a sexually healthy male and a sexually healthy female are sexually intimate. And the purpose of that marriage under God. Our enemy has convinced the blinded masses who hate Christ and hate the truth that these truths are flexible and personal and negotiable. They are none of the things that they think they are. We see parades today where grown adults run around naked, barely clothed in front of children whose foolish parents took them to the parade. And they get celebrated because of the month it is when in any other time of the year they would be arrested and put in jail for indecent exposure. We're battling against a philosophy that is anti-Christ and anti-God. My question for you is, in view of this first thing, namely, that family is designed by God, what fight are you fighting? Are you engaged in the battle? Are you fighting the good fight of faith? Our society has forfeited any and all right to judge with justice. Our world is lost. So when they use words like justice and equity and fairness, I don't listen. They have no idea what these words mean. They only know what they want. Listen to what Corinthians says. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5. It says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive and we make it obey Jesus Christ. Here's my question for you, church. Are you doing that? That's what it means to fight the good fight today. 
Are you making every thought captive and you make, are you making it obey Jesus Christ? Are you destroying every argument that poses itself against the truth of God? We should be working hard on our marriages. But furthermore, if something comes our way, our Christian responsibility is to assess it and destroy it if it's contrary to the knowledge of God. No, it's not okay to live and let live. No, it's not okay to simply make everything permissible because everyone has to decide for themselves. Everyone can decide for themselves. But our responsibility is to defend, as Christians, this fact the family is designed by God. And there is no negotiating this point. The family is designed by God. In this case, we've learned that regardless of what the world says about men, women, children, sexuality, or anything else that's connected to this very intricate topic, what we have learned thus far is this. Regardless of the black and white and the shades of gray, this much we know absolutely and without equivocation, God designed the family. Secondly, we also learned that a godly family is a submissive family. A godly family is a submissive family. And Paul says to the church at Ephesus in our text here, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. We don't submit to each other because one is better than the other. We don't submit to each other because one is stronger than the other. We don't submit to each other because we're manipulating each other. You hear where I'm going with this? The reason we submit to each other is because we respect Jesus. Now, if you aren't being submissive in your relationships, if there isn't a mutual submission in your relationships, then one or the other or both is being irreverent to Jesus. In the church, there is a mutual submission. This doesn't mean that the submission or respect that the wife is called to have for her husband doesn't exist. Uh, Paul still says in chapter 5, verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands. What it means, on the contrary, is that whether we are male or female, husband, wife, or child, single, engaged, married, or divorced, we are all, say we are all, we are all in Christ together. And we should have a respect and a bond of love that's unbreakable, that is appreciated, and that is cherished. This is what Colossians chapter 3, verse 14 talks about when it says that we are, as a church, held together with a bond of love. If this is true, then how much more should our submission and respect be present at our kitchen table? There are no rogues or renegades in the body of Christ. There are no rebels or revolutionaries in the body of Christ. We are family, 
brothers and sisters, but not with silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. Equally, each and every one of us, man, woman, and child, to the glory of God the Father. And if this is the case, then submission is expected of us and of our families too. Whether we are male or female, husband, wife, child, as should be submissive love, it, it, it should pervade the church and it should also pervade our families. All that we say or do should be heartfelt, spirit-driven out of respect for our Lord and the love that we should have for each other. This is God's purpose and plan in his creative culture. But it doesn't stop there. We also learned something else that's extraordinarily important. Third, we learned that every member of the family has a role to play. Every member of the family has a role to play. You may recall from the text that we read when we were going through this, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that there's a text that describes the body which is whole but is made up of parts. Each part has its function and its responsibility, its part to play. The ears don't smell. The eyes don't speak. So it is in the family. God has ordained that every member of the family fulfill their God-given role and responsibility. The word for this is complementarianism. Complementarianism is a philosophy that teaches a man and a woman have specific God-designed roles and responsibilities to fulfill. Based upon Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, which says, among other scriptures, that God made for Adam a woman who was fit for him. In other words, there is no relationship in this world so unique as that relationship between a man and a woman, a woman and a man. You guys hear that, Lionel Richie? No, I'm just kidding. We believe that the husband is the head of the home. Amen? That's scriptural. We believe that the husband is the head of the home, that the wife is designed by God, get this, just for him. Not that the woman is less than every man. That's not the case. The woman is not even less than her own husband. The scripture says that the wives are not to submit to men, but that the wives are to submit, what does it say? To their own husbands. So there's a dynamic there. There's a relationship and responsibility there that God has given specifically to a husband and to his wife, to the wife and to her husband. That's important for us to understand. There is no happier time for a man or any woman or any child than when they are living according to the role and responsibility that God has given to them to fulfill. Let me say that again. There is no happier time for any man, woman, or child than when those people are operating in their God-given role and responsibility. Now let me say this. 
This is important. The husband may be the head of the home, but it's the wife who sets the tone of the home. I'm going to say this again because you need to get it. I might need to say it three times for the guys. The husband might be the head of the home, but it's the wife who sets the tone of the home. In complementarianism, church, it isn't that women or men have different values. It's that they have different roles and responsibilities in jobs in God's scheme. And while each and every family member might differ here or there to some degree in one way or another, it cannot be questioned without twisting scripture that ultimately the husband is accountable to God for his family. But just equally, just as equally important is this truth. Just as the husband is the head of the home, so the wife that God has given to him sets the tone of that home. I cannot overestimate or emphasize to you, church, the importance and value of the part that a godly woman plays in her family. It is inestimable. Of the utmost value. What a family can accomplish when the wife and or mother has dedicated her heart and soul to serving God before her family is unmatched. So, whether you're a husband or a wife, a parent or a child, you have a God-given role and responsibility. Now, this doesn't mean that any one person is more important to God than any other family member. The price that Jesus paid for the men and the women and the children is not different among them. It is the same from person to person. And so Galatians 3.28 says it like this, there is neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female nor slave nor free, but all are one in Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that when I became a Christian, I was emasculated. This doesn't mean that when my wife became a Christian, she lost her identity as a woman. No, that's not the point. That would be taking this verse out of context. What Paul is saying is that in spite of the differences that we see among each other in that three-dimensional level, in God's eyes, he sees two groups of people, those who are in Christ and those who are not. And in that regard, church, our culture can yell and scream all it wants about male, female, binary, non-binary. It doesn't matter. In God's eyes, he sees in Christ and not in Christ. As far as he's concerned, he created the male and female. And the world can go mad. But at the end of the day, Paul says, we have a role and responsibility in the eyes of God and according to his creation mandate. And we are either in his son, Jesus Christ, or we are not. Fourth, we learned that marriage requires love and respect. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verse 33. Paul says, let each one of you, how many of us? Each one of you, love his wife as himself and let the wife see to it that she respects her husband. If there's anything that I can say by way of reminder on this point, it's this. Our titles don't earn us anything that our characters don't demand first. Our titles, let me say this again. That was that good, wasn't it? Our titles don't earn us anything that our characters don't earn for us first. In other words, gentlemen, are you listening? I don't care if you're a husband, if you're a bad husband. If you are a good Christian, you will be a good husband. Don't think that you limping into a marriage relationship entitles you to the love and the affection that God has in store for you through a healthy wife. You better work it. You need to earn that. You need to demonstrate that love to your wife. And you won't do it by being a hypocrite. If you want to be a good husband, be a good Christian. Ladies, are you listening? If you want your husband to love you well, if you want your husband to treat you like the queen that God has set you up to be, don't act like a woman in the street. You want to be treated like a queen? Act like a queen. That falls on you. It doesn't fall on me. It doesn't fall on your husband. It doesn't fall on your dad. It doesn't fall on your whatever. The truth of the matter is, is the world, as you already know, has lost its way in regards to gender. And in the chaos and confusion, they have no idea where to go anymore for what really matters, where the value is found. The scripture teaches us our value is found in Christ. And while being married, right, babe, is an amazing thing. You better agree with me now. I'm, I'm, walk, I'm walking the plank. Don't leave me hanging. <laughs> while being married is an amazing thing, being married does not entitle you to God's blessing. You want to have a good marriage? Be a good Christian. If you are a good Christian, you will have a good marriage. You will not back into being a good Christian by way of marriage. Now, every now and then, God does something special. Every now and then, a husband or a wife says, if it wasn't for my spouse, I wouldn't love Jesus. Or if, I, if it wasn't for my spouse, I wouldn't love Jesus the way I am. My devotional life is because of my spouse. My passion and my fervor for Jesus is because of my spouse. Every now and then, God does that. Amen? God does this, and we praise his name for the work that he does in our lives through our spouses it's a wonderful thing. But by way of general rule and principle, if you want to be a good husband or a good wife, just get to being a good Christian, and it will happen. As husbands and wives, we also deserve love and respect. But these things aren't given and received while our titles are being fulfilled by a mentality that isn't baptized by Christianity. Everything we say, everything we do should be baptized by our faith. 
I love what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 26. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Listen, when you become a husband or a wife, this doesn't change. You just now have a particular area in which to use these principles. You serve your wife. You serve your children. Your wife serves you. Your wife serves your children. This is part of what we are called to do. And when we get married, this doesn't change. In another place, Jesus says, whatever you wish others would do to you, do so even unto them, because this is the law and the prophets in Matthew 7, 12. This is what we call the golden rule. Do unto others as you would want them to do to you. Church, this doesn't change in your kitchen. If anything, these principles, here's my point, if anything, these principles that we were, that we were taught growing up or that were taught in the context of a worship environment, if anything, they should be emphasized even more in our homes. If we're great Christians, we'll be great spouses. If we're great Christians, we'll be great children. Just because you're 17 doesn't mean you have a different set of rules to live by. Your rules and our rules are the same rules. And we're all held accountable to God. Let me put it to you like this. If you can't love and respect your spouse, don't bother telling people about Jesus. If you can't love and respect your spouse, don't bother with evangelism. If you can't love and respect your spouse, don't bother with missions. If you can't love and respect your spouse and your proximity to me or our ministry here at FBCCR, I hope, hear me when I say this, I hope that you'll receive this gentle conviction that I'm giving to you today, not to be discouraged, but to receive that God doesn't want you to be a good husband or good wife apart from your faith. He wants you to focus on your faith and be a good husband or wife because of that focus. Fifth, we've learned that your marriage and family will have seasons. As I mentioned, no Christian is perfect. And therefore, since no Christian is perfect, no marriage is perfect. My prayer and my hope is that both you and your marriage are close to God. I pray that you are intimate with him and your spouse. I pray that you spend time with him devotionally and that you spend time with your spouse emotionally. But I'm also aware of this fact. We are humans, and where there are humans, there is trouble, right? Romans 7.21 says, I have found this to be a law, that when I would do good, evil is close at hand. Have you ever, have you ever felt that, seen it, experienced it in your own life, where you're like, 
I'm going to wake up Monday morning and I'm going to start seriously diving into my prayer time and my Bible reading. And you wake up and you read and you pray and you go outside and you've got a flat tire and your phone starts ringing and the boss is saying, I'm going to need you here 15 minutes early. Oh, man. It never fails, does it? There is an effort on the part of God's enemy, who is also the enemy of God's people, to hamstring us, to challenge us, to cause us to follow short, to fall short, excuse me. We know what we want. We want to be happy with our marriage, with our partner, with our children, and of course in our lives. But that simply isn't going to be the case 100% of the time. That's an unrealistic expectation because we're imperfect. Contrary to what Daimi says, she's imperfect too. Yeah. <laughs> and as a result of my imperfections and Daimi's imperfections, our marriage has gone through seasons. But our God is the God of all seasons, amen? And I don't want you to be discouraged. I want you to hear me. It doesn't matter how dark or gloomy it might be for you right now. God is there. You may not be able to see him, but he always sees you. And when things are going well or are improving, are on an upward trajectory, which is what you've planned and what you've hoped for and what you've prayed for, don't quit. Commit yourself to the steps of being faithful to God and faithful to Jesus and faithful to being sensitive to God the Holy Spirit as you live your lives and your marriage will happen naturally. But it's okay if you're winter, spring, summer, and fall come every now and then. It's okay. We all have experienced seasons in our lives, and we've all experienced seasons in our marriages. Just because we're going through a season doesn't mean that our marriage isn't worth saving. Just because we're going through seasons doesn't mean our marriage isn't worth fighting for. So be relieved, but don't be too relieved <laughs> because you and I have work to do, amen, for our own souls and, of course, for our families. Our spouses are counting on us not to be chumps. Our children are counting on us not to be chumps. You don't have to feel guilty about not being wonderful all the time. You just can't accept mediocrity and stay there. You don't have to feel guilty about making mistakes in your marriage all the time. You just can't accept mediocrity and stay there. Are you hearing me? Are you receiving this? You don't have to feel like a failure because your marriage is in a rough patch. You just can't accept the rough patch or mediocrity, and be willing to stay there. God's called us to a high calling, church. Well, let me read a scripture to you. This is found in the book of Philippians. So open your ears and listen attentively. 
This is what it says. I do not consider that I have made it my own, the righteousness, the upward calling that, that I have. I, I, I have not reached that. I, I don't consider that I've attained it. I've, I haven't made it my own yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. I love that line. If you don't think this way, it's because you're immature. If you don't reach difficulty and go, what's God going to do in this situation? You're immature. If you don't come up against difficulties and hardships and say, I don't want to be here, but I'm excited to see what you're going to do, Lord, you aren't where you need to be. The apostle is saying, I'm not where I should be, but I forget what was yesterday, and I press on toward the goal of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus for my life. This leads to our sixth and final point. Your marriage will never be healthier than you. Your marriage will never be healthier than you. This is so important. This is important because when a marriage exists between two people who love each other and one of those people starts to neglect themselves or starts to neglect their faith, it's difficult for the other person to call them on the carpet. We don't want to fight about every little thing. And we want to give some leeway and some latitude to the people in our life who we love and cherish and adore. When we have interpersonal conflicts, our first assumption is always that there is some kind of deficiency in the person we're having a conflict with. For example, every fight I've ever had in my marriage, Dimey has started. <laughs> it's never that the conflict might be due to a deficiency of our own. And there are a lot of reasons as to why we think that way. Maybe our parents never disciplined us. Maybe we're so self-involved that we can't see anything that has to do with ourselves, and we see a problem always in others and everywhere. There are a plethora of reasons why someone might be in that particular position, but I can tell you this, the challenges in your marriage are not due to your spouse alone. You better own it. Your marriage will never be healthier than you. Here's the truth. Our lives will never outpace our character. Our lives will never outpace our character. Like the psalmist who confidently said, Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Like the psalmist who said that to the Lord, we have to come to the realization that who we are and what we do matters to God. And 
to the people who are in our lives. If we want our marriages to be healthy, if we want our marriages to improve, if we want these things to be evident in our home, then we should start by improving ourselves. Because our marriages will never be healthier than we are. In order to develop that character, in order to mature that faith, it's necessary to have a plan. So here's a plan for you. You want to mature? You want to grow? You want to be the indispensable ingredient to your marriage and your family? Amen. I'm glad to hear that. Here are six things I want to challenge you to do this week. Number one, read your Bible. Read your Bible. Don't come next week and say, I read my Bible Tuesday at 2 o'clock. No, read your Bible regularly. Read your Bible regularly. Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse 17, God's word is the truth. You need that, church. I need that. We need to be reminded on a regular basis of the source of truth and that God's word is truth. Read your Bible regularly. Number two, spend time in prayer. Spend time in prayer. I don't mean, God, help me pass this test. You can pray about those things. That's perfectly fine. But don't only go to God when you're walking into a test. Pray regularly. Number three, attend worship in Bible study. Attend worship in Bible study. There is a significant difference between who you are when you are regularly in worship and in Bible study versus who you are when you're not. You don't have to tell me. I know. I've been doing this for a long time. Number four, surround yourself with mature Christian people. You know why some of you don't grow? Some of you don't grow because you're the most mature person in your group. You've outpaced your group. It's time to get a different group. You have to put yourself under the influence of Christians who are more mature than you are. If you don't do that, you will not grow. Don't give yourself leeway on this point. Don't give yourself allowance on this point. If you want to grow, you've got to place yourself under the influence of people who are more mature than you. Now, if that's something that you want to do, I'm going to say something to you, and you need to hear this. If you lie on your bed and say, God, find someone that I can place myself under, you're not going about it right. You need to think of who you can place yourself under. You need to think of who is close to your circle that you can start to have lunch with, have coffee with, have a personal Bible study with, whatever the case might be. You have to take responsibility for that decision. Someone is not going to come out and seek you. That's not how it works. You need someone to pour into you. You need someone to disciple you. You need someone to mentor you. The people who are doing that, they're busy. If you want to be included in that process, you need to pursue that opportunity. So whether it's friends, whether it's a lay leader, whether it's somebody that you know within your family, regardless of who it might be, start praying and asking God to put in your mind someone that you can live 
under the influence of. Number five, pay attention to your health. Pay attention to your health. Remember, our point right now is that your marriage will never be healthier than you. If you do not take care of your health, you are making yourself a liability to your spouse. If you do not take care of your health, you are making yourself a liability to your spouse. He said, I'm going to go to the gym. Well, that's great. Go to the gym this week. That's fine. I'm talking about the full-orbed person that God has made you. Read good books. Listen to podcasts. Stop watching trash. Get off the social media. Have good conversations. Eat good food. Walk. These are things that contribute to your overall health. If you are not healthy, your marriage will be compromised. This is a simple fact of the matter because when God made us, he made us both emotional, physical, and spiritual. This is why when we read the Psalms and he's dealing with sin, he says, I lie in bed, but I cannot sleep. You ever ever notice that? You have an emotional situation going on and you can't stop eating? Or you have an emotional situation going on and you can't eat? (laughs) Because God has so woven us together that our bodies receive symptoms because of a spiritual battle or our emotions are affected by the food that we eat. It matters what we eat. It matters the sleep that we get. It matters the exercise that we engage in. Do not sit idly by and expect that your health is just going to happen. That's not going to happen. It's your responsibility. I don't care how many vaccines Pfizer puts out. There's no shot for this. Your overall health is your responsibility. I hope you'll receive it. It's not your spouse's responsibility. Your spouse married you with the understanding that you weren't going to be a health risk. Because we go to the altar and we say, in sickness and in health, but we don't think anybody's going to get sick. You've got to take care of yourself because your marriage will never be healthier than you are. Sixth, express yourself to those around you. Remember, these are the steps that we are taking to become healthy so that we can contribute our health to our marriage's health. You must learn how to speak Men, you must learn how to speak to your wife. Ladies, you must learn how to speak. Not like that. You know the proverb says, you're better off living in the corner of a roof than in a house with a nagging wife? That's scripture, man. There's a way that men operate. And it's not like that. I can't explain why. It just is. But we have to learn to communicate to each other. Amen? We're still working, Dimey and I. 
We're, we're coming up on 25 years here. We're still working on communication. Because she thinks I have ESP. I have ESPN. <laughs> but I cannot read minds, bro. And sometimes she starts off like, a, like at mile marker three in a conversation. I go, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't understand what's happening. And then sometimes we go through something, and, and she goes, well, you never told me about that. And I go, yeah, I'm sure I did. No, no, you never did. And I had the whole conversation with myself. I never told her a thing. This is an effort that is required. We can't assume this stuff. We have to have a concerted effort to communicate with each other. Now, if communication is good, then less communication is required. You see how this happens? But we have to learn to communicate. This is part of what makes a healthy marriage. If this is part of the character-building process that you and I undergo, then I find it hard to see how our marriages won't be amazing. What's unattractive about someone who reads their Bible regularly, prays regularly, has a group of people around them that influences them positively, takes care of their health, and tells their spouse, I love you, and I was thinking about you today? Who would not want that? I just told you what you, what you need to do. If you didn't write it down and you don't go do it, that's on you. But that's all you need to do. If your faith is where it needs to be and you're working on these personality traits to be a blessing to your spouse, your marriage can't be anything but amazing and positive and godly. And that leads me here. When marriages aren't doing well, there's always a simple line that can be traced. If you stop taking care of yourself, if you stop communicating, if you let your health go, and suddenly you're going to church sporadically instead of regularly, and you stop reading your Bible. Don't be surprised if your marriage starts to suffer. In conclusion, let me say this. Throughout our Kingdom Family series, we learned a number of things. This morning I've restated six of them to you, and I hope that you're going to walk away with some nuggets today and put them into practice. We've covered a lot, probably too much, but nevertheless, we did it. I'm pleading with you. In Jesus' name. To put these principles into use in your life. <laughs>